Welcome back, warriors and peacekeepers, to the Hemingway List War of Peace Yearathon. We're talking about, well, we're talking about Book One, Chapter Five. But here's the thing: Maud did this weird thing at the start of this book where they decided to chop up a bunch of chapters into pieces because there are some uncharacteristically long chapters at the start of War and Peace. War and Peace has 365 very short chapters, but for some reason there's a few long ones right at the start of the book. So Maud thought, you know what, I'm going to even it out a bit, and they chopped it up. But that means it's all out of whack. Now my translation is based on that Maud system. So if you're reading the Andalus Aussie slang translation, you're going to have to read a couple of extra chapters. If you're reading the Maud Project Gutenberg freebie one, you're going to have to read a couple of extra chapters. What you're probably going to have to do today to get up to line with everyone else is read chapters 7, 8, and 9. And we should end at the part where someone starts lifting a bear off the ground and dancing with it. All right? You can't miss it. If someone lifts a bear off the ground and dances with it, you're that's where you should stop. Cool? Cool. And it'll be at the end of a chapter. All right. So what we have to read... To, I have to read chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. I have to read a lot of chapters. Anyway, first of all, let's talk about chapter... Five. Chapter five. Maud readers, you'll be a bit behind. Oh, that's the discussion prompt. Andre wants out. Is he wrong to feel this way? And poor old pregnant Lisa. I love the contrast between... You know what? This feels weird to talk about this before we read the chapter. I'm going to read chapter six and then we'll do the discussion. So it makes sense. Chapter six goes like this. Everyone thanked Anna for throwing the piss up and then took off home. Pierre was all over the shop he was built like a brick shit house and had no idea, as the saying goes, how to enter a drawing room and still less how to leave one. In other words, he was an absolute nufty who didn't know how to say something agreeable before going away. He never paid attention either, always off his, with the fairies. When he got up to leave Anna's, he picked up the general's three-cornered hat, played with the plume of it, and didn't even notice it wasn't his until the general said, Oi, dickhead, wrong hat. But despite being awkward as hell, he was an alright bloke with a kind of modest expression, so it wasn't like everyone hated him or anything. As he left, Anna turned to him and said with a Christian mildness, See you soon, yeah? But oi, next time he's up on the pro-Napoleon talk. When she said this, he didn't reply and only bowed. But again, you could see by his face he was a good bloke. His smile seemed to say, Maybe we have different opinions, but still, you could tell I'm a good bloke. And everyone, including Anna Pavlovna, felt this. Prince Andre had gone out into the hall, and while turning his back to allow a footman to help him into his cloak, he listened indifferently to his wife chit-chatting with Prince Ibelit, who had also come into the hall. Prince Ibelit stood close to Prince Andre's beautiful knocked-up Sheila, and started fixedly and stared fixedly at her through his eyeglass. "Go inside, Annette, or you'll catch a cold," said the little princess, taking leave of Anna Pavlovna. "It's all good," she added quietly. Anna Pavlovna had already managed to speak to Lisa about hooking up Anatole and the little princess's sister-in-law, Mary. I'm counting on you, babe, said Anna Pavlovna, also quietly. Write to her and then let me know how her father reacts to the whole thing. Au revoir, and she left the hall. 
Prince Ippolit walked up to the little princess and, bending his face real close to her, started whispering something. Two faceless footmen, one the princesses and one Ippolit, stood near them, holding a shawl and a cloak, waiting for them to finish talking. They listened to the French sentences with no clue what the hell they were saying. It was just gobbledygook to them. But they didn't let that on. They tried to make it look like they could understand if they wanted to. They just didn't want to. The princess, as usual, spoke smilingly and listening, and listened with a laugh. Fuck, I'm so glad I didn't go to that ambassador's ball, eh? said Ippolit. Those boring as been a good as night, though, here, don't you reckon? And they reckon the ball is the place to be, replied the princess, drawing up her downy lip. All the chicky babes in society will be there. Not all of them, though, because you won't be there, eh? said Prince Ippolit, smiling happily. He snatched the shawl from the footman, even shoving the footman aside before wrapping around the princess. It was hard to tell if he meant to do this next bit or if he was just mega awkward, but after he adjusted the shawl, he kept his arm around her for a long time as if embracing her. Still smiling, she gracefully moved away, turning to glance at her husband. Prince Andre had his eyes shut. That's how knackered he was. You ready or what? he asked his wife, looking past her. Prince Ippolit quickly chucked his cloak on, which in the latest fashion reached all the way down to his heels, and stumbling in it, rushed out into the porch, following the princess, whom a footman was helping into the carriage. Princess, au revoir, eh? cried he, stumbling with his tongue as much as his feet. The princess, picking up her dress, was hopping into her seat in the dark carriage. Her husband was adjusting his sabre. Prince Ippolit, under pretense of being helpful, was really just being a pain in the ass to everyone. "'Allow me, mate,' said Prince Andre in Russian, in a cold and cunty tone to Prince Ippolit, who was blocking his path. "'I'll see you back at mine, Pierre,' said the same voice, though now it held no trace of cuntiness. The postillion prompted his horse and the carriage wheels rattled. Prince Ippolit guffawed goofily as he stood in the porch waiting for the Viscount whom he had promised to take home. "'Well, Monsieur,' said the Viscount, having jumped in the carriage beside Ippolit, "'that little princess of yours is a bloody beauty, mate. What a stunner. Quite French, too.' And he kissed the tips of his fingers. Ippolit burst out laughing. "'You are a dirty dog, aren't you, you little scoundrel? Absolute dog, mate. I mean, you act innocent, but you are a dirty dog,' continued the Viscount. "'I feel bad for her, hubby. The little officer reckons he's top shit, acts like a bloody monarch.' Ippolit spluttered again and amid his laughter said, Yeah, and you were fucking saying that Russian bitches aren't as good as French ones, eh? You just gotta know how to deal with them, mate. Pierre reached the house first and went straight into Prince Andre's study as if it were his own. Making himself at home, he lay down on the sofa, grabbed from the shelf the nearest book, it was Caesar's Commentaries, and resting on his elbow, thumbed to a random page and started reading. What have you done to poor Mademoiselle Chereur? She'll take a while to recover from that, said Prince Andre as he entered the study, rubbing his small white hands. Pierre turned over on the sofa, making it creak. He lifted his head to Prince Andre, smiled and waved his hand. That abbot was interesting, though, even if he doesn't see things in the right light. I reckon perpetual peace is possible, but I had to explain, not by balance of political power. It was clear that Prince Andre gave zero fucks about such abstract conversations. Yeah, well, regardless, it wasn't the time or place for you to express that, Monsieur. But, by the way, have you at least made your bloody mind up about what you're going to do with your life? Guardsman, diplomatist, asked 
diplomatist? asked Prince Andre after a brief pause. Pierre sat up on the sofa with his legs tucked under him. Eh, I don't know. Both those options sound shit. You've got to decide on something. Your father expects you to. When Pierre was ten, he had been sent abroad with an abbot as a tutor and remained away until he was twenty. When he got back to Moscow, his father dismissed the abbot and said to the young man, Now off you go to Petersburg. Have a look around. Choose a profession. Anything you like is good with me. Here's a letter to Prince Vasily, and here's some cash. Write to me about it, and I'll help you with whatever you need. Pierre had by now spent three months trying to choose a career and hadn't come any closer to making a decision. It was about this problem that Prince André was speaking. Pierre rubbed his forehead. But he must be a Freemason, said Pierre, referring to the abbot, whom he had met that night. That's all bullshit, Prince André interrupted him again. Let's talk business. What about the horse guards? Have you checked them out? No, I haven't. But do you know what I've been thinking about? I wanted to tell you this. There's a war now against Napoleon, right? If it were a war for freedom, I could get on board with that. I'd be the first to sign up. But to help England and Austria against the greatest man in the world? That's just not cool. Prince André only shrugged his shoulders at Pierre's childishness. He first acted as though it would be impossible to reply to such nonsense, but it would in fact have been hard to give any other answer than the one Prince André gave to this naive question. If no one fought except on his own conviction, there wouldn't be any wars, he said. Which would be awesome, said Pierre. Prince André smiled ironically. It probably would be awesome, but it's still never going to happen. Well, why are you going to war then? asked Pierre. Why? Well, I don't know. I suppose because I have to. And besides that, he paused. I'm going because my life here is shit and it doesn't suit me. All right, now we're up to speed and can discuss that chapter, which I should have read yesterday, but I'm reading now. Apologies for that. Rick Evans said, I love the contrast between Pierre's intellectual and idealistic nature and André's bored insocuance. Pierre, of course, is barely eligible for attendance in that salon, and perhaps his questioning spirit is more of a byproduct of someone who is aware of the complex class struggle at play. André is a card-carrying member of the elite and acts from entitlement rather than rational thought. Brian E. Denton, OG War and Peace legend, says, spin-off idea... Pierre's young adult abroad, adulthood abroad in Europe with the tutor. Very cool. Go for it. Write a fanfic, Brian E. Denton. Sunshine Cat said, I'm reading Maud and had to go to the end of chapter 6 to get to that line. Yes, sorry, I should have mentioned that yesterday. If we listen to Pierre, I guess he's part of the problem. Andre is concerned about Pierre finding a calling for what is his own. He's going to war without conviction because he doesn't know. Iblet has a crush on... Lisa, it seems, while her husband barely notices her. Yes, that's uh, that's uh, that's how it seems. Brian, oh, brainless shooter, first time reader says, "I've been wanting to read War and Peace for the longest time, but I've never seemed to catch quite the right time. I found this really, I found this read along thanks to a post in R slash Books, and immediately started and read the first four chapters. Well, welcome, brainless shooter." I hope you stick with us for the year. Stay in line, one chapter per day. We march forward as a group. I don't know what to make of Ippolit yet, says Brainless Shooter. He may be, he may become, maybe become then just a nuisance. Looking forward to share this with you all. Do tell me if I can express myself better. Writing English is still kind of hard for me. 
hey well you're going to get the hang of it here that's for sure um if no one fought except on what his own conviction there would be no wars and that would be splendid but it would never come about I can see Tolstoy, oh, this is Order from Chaos saying this, I can see Tolstoy the pacifist and Christian anarchist shining through in this exchange. I don't know when this was written on Tolstoy's spiritual journey. I read The Kingdom of God is Within You some years ago, and this sounds like a conversation between the idealist and the cynic in Tolstoy. It's refreshing that Pierre doesn't exactly look great here, a bit fickle and flighty, and such an aristo, aristo but Tolstoy still doesn't allow the cynic to win. Andrew really can explain a good reason can't explain a good reason for being committed to the war, so he ends the chapter looking rather foolish, in my opinion. One would think going to war is rather extreme an action to take because you fancy a change in lifestyle. Perhaps there is something here to discuss about the subsuming of the self into the state with things like this. If war is happening, one might as well join in without thinking too much about the reason. An anti-state pacifist reading of this would perhaps use this as an example of how banal the evils of war can be when abstractions like nations and empires clash right up until someone gets their head sliced off. Brian E. Denton steps in again saying, I'm fairly certain this his full commitment to anarcho-pacifist Christianity came after War and Peace. That said, like you, I read his Christian work before reading this novel, so I see a lot of the later philosophy in some of the characters here. Thanks for bringing this up. I think I'm going to read the novel this year with an eye towards this perspective, and I'm definitely going to keep an eye out for your comments throughout the year to see what else you see on this topic. Well, guys, that sounds very brainy, and, you know, I'll keep an eye on what you guys say and pretend I understand it. Uh, Babble Hale, Bubble Hale says, I agree, Andre seems more committed to his station and perceived duties than, to his, than he is to the war effort. You know, I think Andre just wants out of his current situation. I think that's it. And he sees the war as a chance to prove himself as sort of a great man, you know, and that's all he wants. I think, I think that's all he wants. He just feels stifled, doesn't he? And it's not right of him to bail on poor old pregnant Lisa and leave her out in the country with his family but um, you can also understand the feeling of I guess feeling like you've got uh, something to prove especially during a war time happy birthday Anna Lewis says the real A-M-I took her thanks thanks you probably saw my Instagram story of my girlfriend and her daughter singing happy birthday to me. That was fun times. Uh, Warren Kovoffi says, I'm not far into the book, but I'm already enjoying the contrast between Pierre and Andre in their friendship. Pierre comes across as like a giant man-child, eager and excited about things, and Andre is so far cold and just annoyed by so much going on. Pretty spot on. I like the conversation between the two when they are at Andre's house where they seem like speaking more freely on Anna, about than at Anna Pavlovna's. Oh, gosh. Okay, cool. You know what? I got to keep reading. There's a lot of comments today, and I appreciate all that, and I wish I could read them all, but I do have three more chapters to read. Now, the third of those chapters, the one that ends with the dancing with the bear, is legitimately one of my favorite chapters in the entire novel. So, if you're thinking, geez, three chapters, I can't get through that, do it. Get through it. They're three short chapters, 
And the third one is really awesome. I'm going to read you them now and Lewis style from my version of the book and you're going to love it. So let's go. Chapter seven goes like this. www.patreon.com slash the Hemingway list. Oh, that's weird that it says that in my book. Um, Maybe you should go there and do some donating. Chapter seven goes really like this though. There was a rustling noise of a dress from the next room and the guys quickly got their acts together so that when Andre's missus came in, she wouldn't be sus. Andre rearranged his face back to the one he'd worn in Anna Pavlovna's drawing room and Pierre quickly took his feet off the couch. The princess came in. This is Princess Elisa, um, I think, yeah. The princess came in. She had changed from her fancy gown to her house dress, a fresh and fancy, as fresh and as fancy as the other. Prince Andre got up and politely placed a chair for her. How the heck is Annette not married, she said, as usual in French, fussing over and settling in the chair. I mean, seriously, she's such a good chick. I swear to God, you men are idiots, especially you, Pierre. You couldn't organize a route in a brothel. All you want to do is argue. I still am arguing with your husband. He's the real idiot here. He wants to go get himself killed at the war, Pierre replied, addressing the princess with that without the usual embarrassment commonly shown by young men when talking to women. The princess came alive at this comment, and Pierre wondered if he'd just put his foot in his mouth. "'That's exactly what I've told him,' said she. "'I don't get it. I never will understand why men can't live without wars. I mean, how come us women don't want anything like that? Don't need it. Okay, Pierre, you be the judge. I always tell him he's got this awesome gig as his uncle's aide-de-camp. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone appreciates him.' The other day at the Apraxins, I heard a lady say, Is that the famous Prince Andre? No kidding, I really heard that. The princess laughed. He's such a big deal everywhere he goes. He might easily get the top gig, the emperor's aide-de-camp. You know, the emperor loves him, right? Me and Annette, we're talking about, we were talking about how to make that happen. How good would that be? Pierre looked at his friend and noticing that he clearly wasn't thrilled about this conversation, gave no reply. When are you going? he asked. Oh, don't ask that. I don't want to hear about him going, said the princess, in a playful, mock-angry tone, the same playful tone she'd spoken to Ippolit with in the drawing-room, and which was so ill-suited to this family circle of which Pierre was almost a member. I was thinking today about all the awesome associations we'll be breaking off, and then, you know, Andre, she gave her husband a significant look. I'm scared, I'm really scared, she whispered, and a shiver ran down her back. Her husband looked surprised as if he hadn't noticed her in the room till now, and spoke to her now in a tone of frigid politeness. "'What are you scared of, Lisa? I don't get it,' said he. "'There. You're so full of yourself. Why are all men like this? Just because he feels like it, for no frickin' reason. He pisses off and leaves me locked up all alone in the country.' "'Not all alone, with my father and sister, remember?' said Prince Andre gently. "'Oh, that's pretty much alone. I won't be able to see any of my friends.' And he asks what I'm scared of. She wasn't sounding playful now, kind of pissed off, actually, and her lip had drawn up, making her look like a little squirrel. She paused here as if she felt it was in poor taste to talk about her pregnancy in front of Pierre, though that was for sure what she was getting at. I still don't see what you're scared of, said Prince Andre carefully, not looking away from her. The princess blushed and raised her arms like I give up. Oh, Andre, why are you acting this way? Oh, you're so... Your doctor said you should go to bed earlier, remember, said Prince Andre. Maybe you'd better hop in bed. 
She didn't say anything, but her short, downy lip quivered. Prince Andre got up, shrugged his shoulders, and walked about the room. Pierre peered over his specs with naive surprise, now at him and now at her. He shifted as if about to get up, but then changed his mind. I don't care if Pierre is here, exclaimed the little princess suddenly, her beautiful face twisting into a tearful grimace. I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. Andre, why have you changed so much towards me? What the hell have I done to you? You're going away, ditching me while I'm preggers, and you don't even care. Why? Lisa, was all Prince Andre said, but in that one word he expressed several clear warnings. Don't say something you'll regret. Maybe this isn't the time. Don't piss me off. She continued anyway. You treat me like a bloody child. I'm not a complete spaz, you know. You weren't at all like this six months ago. Elisa, please stop, said Prince Andre, his tone growing more severe. Pierre was by now feeling incredibly awkward. He rose and approached the princess. The sight of her tears cut him to his core. He felt he might cry himself. It's all good, princess. Don't cry. It, it just seems bad now because, uh, I, I promise, I've been through something like... Uh, well, you know, it's like, you know, fuck, sorry, I'm, I'm out of line. I'll leave you guys to it. Don't be sad, though, princess. Goodbye. Prince Andre snatched him by the hand. Nah, wait a sec, Pierre. The princess isn't a complete asshole. She knows I was looking forward to hanging with, out with you tonight. Ha, huh, of course, only thinking of yourself, muttered the princess, letting angry tears roll down her cheeks. Lisa, said Prince Andre dryly, raising his voice to an I'm not fucking around pitch. Suddenly, her angry squirrel expression shifted to a look of innocent and piteous fear. Her beautiful eyes searched her husband's face, and now she assumed the expression of a timid, overruled dog, admitting defeat to its keeper, rapidly wagging its drooping tail. Mon Dieu, mon Dieu, she muttered, and she scooched up her dress with one hand, went to her husband and planted a kiss on his forehead. Good night, Lisa, said he, and he gave her the kind of chivalrous kiss he would have given a stranger. That's chapter 7. Let's keep going. Okay, chapter 8 goes like this. The friends were silent. They were both utterly stumped as to what to say. Pierre glanced repeatedly at Prince Andre. Prince Andre rubbed his forehead with his small hand. Fuck it, let's get some supper, he sighed, moving to the door. The dining room was posh as, and all shiny and new, everything. The table, napkins, silverware, china and glasses all had that brand spanking new look going on, exactly like you'd expect to see in the house of a newly married couple. Halfway through their food, Prince Andre leaned his elbows on the table and with his leg jittering nervously, started talking like someone who'd been waiting to get something off their chest. Never ever get married, mate, just don't. That's all I can say. My missus is doing my fucking head in. Don't marry until you feel like you've done everything you possibly can in life. And when you do, choose a woman. And when you do choose a woman, wait until you stop loving her. Wait till that lusty feeling goes away so you can see clearly who she really is. Otherwise, you'll end up stuck with the wrong person. Wait until you're like really old, once you've got nothing to offer the world. Otherwise, your value as a man will go to waste. Uh, your value will be wasted on trivial crap. Nah, no shit, I'm serious. Don't give me that look, as if you're shocked to hear this. If you get married, that's it. Don't expect to ever achieve anything worthwhile in your future. You'll just go on feeling like you're winding up your life and everything is now closed to you, except, of course, the drawing room, where you'll be stuck side by side with a court lackey and a fuckwit. Oh, what's the bloody point? And he waved his arm. Pierre took his specs off, which changed his face significantly, but made him look kinder still and gazed at his mate in amazement. 
My wife, continued Prince Andre, she is a great woman. I know she would never betray me, and that's a rare quality, but mate, what I wouldn't give to be single again. Listen, I haven't said this to anyone other than to you because I like you. As he said this, Prince Andre showed no resemblance to the bored and nonchalant Bolkonsky who had lounged in Anna Pavlovna's easy chairs and with glazed eyes muttered French phrases between his teeth. Now every muscle in his face had come alive. There was a nervous energy about him. His eyes, which had seemed to entirely lack the fire of life, now blazed like a bushfire. It was clear that his lifelessness in ordinary times was balanced by a fierce passion during these times of almost morbid irritation. Uh, Now look... You don't get why I'm saying this, he continued, but it's the whole story of life. You talk of Bonaparte and his achievements, said he, though Pierre hadn't mentioned Bonaparte since the party. But Big Bono, when he went about his business, he moved step by step towards his goals. He was free to do that. He had nothing to worry about except his goal, and that's why he reached it. But tie yourself up with a woman, and you're like a chained convict with no freedom, and all your hope and ambition becomes a tormentor, feeding you with regret drawing rooms, gossip, balls, showing off, trivial crap. That's the enchanted circle I'm stuck in. I'm now going to the war, the greatest war there ever was, and I'm a total noob and I know jack shit. I'm likeable and cheeky, continued Prince Andre, and Anna Pavlovna's people listen to me, and those fucking idiots with my wife. Those fucking idiots my wife can't live without, those women... If you only knew what those society women are, and women in general, my father's right. They're selfish, stuck-up, stupid, trivial in everything. That's what women are when you see their true colours. When you first meet them, or when they're out in society, they seem to have some intrigue, some depth. But there's nothing, nothing, nothing. Do not, I repeat, do not get married, my friend, concluded Prince Andre. It's so messed up, said Pierre. That you, you of all people, think that you're hopeless or that your life is ruined. You've got your whole life ahead of you. Anything is possible. And you... He stopped short, but his tone betrayed that he thought very highly of his friend and that he had high hopes for his future. How can you say stuff like that? Said Thought Pierre. He considered Prince Andre to be an absolute true blue legend because he possessed in spades all the qualities Pierre lacked. Qualities you might file under strength of will. Pierre was always astonished at his mate's calmness in dealing with dickheads, his vault-like memory, his extensive reading. He'd read everything, knew everything, and had an opinion about everything. But above all, he admired what a hard worker he was when it came to his career and studies. And when Pierre was often struck by his mate's disinterest in philosophical meditation, something he himself was totally addicted to, he regarded even this as a more of a strength than a problem. Even in the friendliest and most easygoing relationships in life, a pat on the back and a compliment are needed, like how grease is needed to keep your wheels spinning nicely. Nah, my path is set, hey, said Prince Andre. There's no point talking about me. Let's talk about you, he added after a pause, smiling at this reassuring thought. The smile was immediately reflected on Pierre's gob. What's there to say about me, said Pierre, his face easing into a carefree smile. I'm nobody, an illegitimate son. His face went all red now, and it was clear it had taken him real effort to say this, without a name, without anything, and it really... But he didn't say what it really was. At the moment I am free and everything's all good. Can't complain. Only problem is is I've got no bloody clue what to do next. What do you reckon I should do? Prince Andre looked at him as if Pierre were his younger brother, lovingly yet condescendingly. 
I really like you, you know, especially because you're the only guy in our whole set who's not afraid to really live. Yep, you're all right, mate, so choose whatever you like. It doesn't matter. Whatever you choose, you'll do great. But for real, you've got to stop hanging out with those Karagan pricks and leading that sort of life. It doesn't suit you, mate. All the partying, all the sexcapades and the rest. Oh, I mean, I'd love to stop, but uh, my hands are tied, answered Pierre, shrugging his shoulders. Women, mate, women. Oh, I seriously don't get it, replied Prince Andre. Civilized women, comme il faut women, sure, that's fine. But the women that hang around the Karagans, the whole women and wine scene, yuck, dude, seriously, I don't get it. Pierre was staying at Prince Vasily Karagan's place and getting up to all kinds of shenanigans with Vasily's man whore of a son, Anatole, the very son whose act they were hoping to clean up by marrying him to Prince Andre's sister Mary. You know something, said Pierre, as if suddenly struck by a nice thought. For real, I've been thinking this for a while. Leading this debaucherous life, I can't think straight about anything. That's why I can't decide. It gives me a damn headache, not to mention it's friggin' expensive. He wants me to come out tonight, but fuck it, I'm not going. You swear to me, you're really not going? Yeah, fully. That's the end of chapter 8. Now we're reading chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the one I was saying is maybe my favourite chapter in the book, so... Buckle up. This is going to be fun times, everyone. <clears throat> Chapter 9. It was an absolute pisser of a night. It was after 1am and Pierre was fanging along in an open carriage. He reckoned he was going home to bed, but there was just no way he would ever really believe that nonsense. It was too nice a night. Plus, he knew the Karagans joint would be the place to be. He was halfway home when he changed his mind, deciding he'd never be able to get to sleep anyway. Yeah, nah, fuck it, I'm going to the Karagans. They'll be kicking on, that's where it's at. But he immediately remembered that he had fully promised Prince Andre not to go there. But then, as happens in people of weak character, he remembered how awesome it was to get pissed and hook up with some total sluzzer, and so he decided to go. The thought immediately occurred to him that the promise he made to Prince Andre was null and void anyway because he'd already promised Prince Anatole Karagan that he would come round. Besides, he thought, those kinds of promises are bullshit, especially considering that I might be dead by tomorrow or something so batshit crazy might happen that honour and dishonour will be all the same. Pierre was prone to little bouts of mental gymnastics like this, ones that nullified all his decisions and intentions. He went to the Karagans. Reaching the massive house near the horse guard's barracks, in which Anatole lived, Pierre entered the lit-up porch, went up the stairs, and straight in the door. There was no one in the anteroom, but the place looked like a bomb had gone off. Empty bottles, cloaks, overshoes lying about. There was a stench of grog and the sounds of rowdy voices in the distance. Cards and supper were done, but the visitors hadn't left yet. Pierre chucked his cloak down and entered the first room, in which were the scraps of supper, a footman, thinking he was being sneaky, was necking the dregs from all the glasses. From the third room came the sounds of laughter, the lads shouting and grow the growling of a bear, and general ruckus. Eight or maybe nine excited lads were huddled around an open window. Three others were mucking around with a young bear, one yanking him about by the chain, trying to get him to attack the others. Hundred bucks on Stevens, shouted one. Yeah, but no holding on, cried another. I bet on Dolokhov, cried a third. Karagan, part our hands, would you? There, leave Bruin alone. He's on a, he's a bet on. 
The whole bottle in one go or he loses, shouted a fourth. Jacob, bring a bottle, shouted the host, a tall, handsome fellow who had, who stood in the group without a coat, just a fine linen shirt unbuttoned. Oh, hang about, it's Petcher. Good man, cried he, addressing Pierre. Another voice carried through the crowd from the window. It stood out from the rest by its sobering ring. It belonged to a man of medium height with clear blue eyes. Oh, hey, this guy, here, you nufty, part the bets. This was Dolokhov, an officer of the Semenov Regiment, a notorious gambler and a duelist who was living with Anatoly. Pierre was chuffed to see him and smiled broadly. What are you mad bastards up to? What's going on here? Oh, fuck, he's not even drunk. Oi, get us a bottle, said Anatoly, and taking a glass from the table, he went up to Pierre. Oi, neck this first, eh? Pierre necked one glass after another, playing catch-up, all the while keeping an eye on the other guests who were already buzzed and were crowding around the window. Anatoly kept topping up Pierre's glass while explaining the sitch. Dolokhov had bet Stevens, an English naval officer, that he could drink a whole bottle of rum sitting on the outer edge of the third-floor window with his legs dangling out. Nah, knackers, you've got to drink it all, said Anatole, pouring Pierre one last glass. Otherwise, I'm not letting you join in. Oh, nah, man, I'll chuck, said Pierre, pushing Anatole aside, and he went up to the window. Dolokhov had a firm grip of the Englishman's hand, reciting clearly and distinctly the terms of their bet, addressing himself particularly to Anatole and Pierre. Dolokhov was still of medium height, with curly hair and silver-blue eyes. He was twenty-five-ish. Like all infantry officers, he wore no moustache, keeping his mouth nice and visible. It was his most striking feature, after all. Its lines finely curved, the middle of his top lip dipping into a wedge and closing firmly on the lower one. Something like two distinct smiles played round the two corners of his mouth, and this, combined with the resolute and insolent intelligence of his eyes, made his face impossible not to notice. Dolokhov, who lived with Anatole, wasn't rich, like his posh wanker mates, nor was he well connected, but though Anatole routinely spent tens of thousands of rubles, Dolokhov had established himself in Anatole's house in such a way that everyone, including Anatole, respected Dolokhov more than Anatole. Dolokhov could play all games and nearly always win them. He could drink anyone under the table but still retain his clear-headedness. Both Anatole and Dolokhov were at the time notorious among the rakes and scapegraces of Petersburg. The bottles of rum were selected. There was a window frame in the way preventing anyone from sitting on the outer sill. This was being forced out by two footmen, who were evidently confused and intimidated by the rowdy lads shouting instructions at them. Anatole, with his swaggering air, approached the window. He felt like smashing something. He shoved the footman out of the way and gave the window frame a hard tug, but it did not budge. He retaliated to this by smashing a pane. Oi, Hercules, you have a go, said he, turning to Pierre. Pierre grabbed the crossbeam, tugged, and with a loud crash, wrenched the oak frame out. All right, now chuck it away over there, chief, so they can't say I'm holding on, said Dolokhov. You're bragging, are you, Englishman? How's it look? asked Anatole. All good, mate, said Pierre, looking at Dolokhov who, with his bottle of rum in hand, was approaching the window from which the light of the sky, the dawn merging with the afterglow of sunset, was visible. Still holding his rum, Dolokhov jumped onto the windowsill. Oi! cried he, standing there and addressing all the lads surrounding him. They all shut up to listen. I bet fifty imperials. He spoke French so the Englishman could understand him, but he did a shitty job of it. 
I bet 50 Imperials, or should we make it 100? No, no, 50, replied the Englishman. Righto, 50 Imperials, that I will down this whole bottle of rum in one go, sitting outside the window on this spot. He bent and pointed to the steep sloping ledge outside the window, and without holding on to anything. Is that right? Quite right, said the Englishman. Anatole took the Englishman by a button on his coat, and looking down at him, the Englishman was a short ass, started repeating the terms of the bet in English. Hold up, cried Dolokhov, whacking his bottle against the window sill for attention. Wait on, Kuragin, oi, everyone. If anyone else does the same, I'll pay him a hundred imperials, got it? The Englishman nodded, but you couldn't tell if he was accepting the challenge or not. Anatole kept hold of him by the button, and, though his nodding indicated that he understood, continued to translate Dolokhov's words into English. A thin young lad, a hussar of the life guards, who had been losing all night, climbed on the window sill to take a squiz, leaning over and looking down. Oh, fuck me dead, he muttered, looking at the stones of the pavement far below. Shut up, cried Dolokhov, pushing him away from the window. The lad hopped down awkwardly, stumbling over his spurs. Dolokhov placed the bottle carefully on the window sill, then climbed through and slowly lowered himself onto the window sill, his legs dangling out. <laughs> Pressing against both sides of the window, he adjusted himself on the, cell, on the shelf, lowered his hands, scooched a little to the right and then to the left, and grabbed a bottle. Anatole brought two candles over and put them by the window, though it was already light enough to see him. Dolokhov's back in his in his white shirt, and his curly hair were lit up now from both sides. Everyone shuffled in around the window, the Englishman in front. Pierre was grinning silently. One man, older than the rest, suddenly shoved his way forward, looking terrified and wanting to grab hold of Dolokhov by the shirt. Yep, nah, fuck this, he's going to kill himself, said he, the only man with half a brain. Anatoly stopped him. Nah, oi, fuck off, you'll spook him, eh? Then he'll be dead and it'll be your fault, all right? Dolokhov turned round and again, using both hands against the window frame, arranged himself on his seat. For real, do not fuck around right now, said he, emitting each word separately through his thin, compressed lips, or I'll throw you down there, all right? Here we go. Saying this, he turned round again, dropped his hands, grabbed the bottle and rested it to his lips, then threw his head back. His free hand came up for balance. One of the footmen paused midway through bending to tidy up some broken glass and stared at Dolokhov's back. Anatole couldn't look away. He was absolutely stoked. The Englishman looked on sideways, screwing up his mouth in concentration. The older bloke, who wasn't into it, ran to a corner of the room and threw himself on a sofa face to the wall. Pierre couldn't look, though through his hands a smile was frozen to his face by fear and horror. All was still. Pierre took his hands from his eyes. Dolokhov still had the bottle to his lips, his other hand floating for balance, only his head was tilting further and further back till his curly hair touched his collar and the hand holding the bottle lifted higher and higher and trembled with effort. You could see the bottle emptying, rising, still higher, his head tilting yet further back. How long does it take, thought Pierre. It seemed like the bottle had been draining for half an hour. Suddenly Dolokhov's spine lurched, his arm trembled nervously. This was enough to make his whole body slip along the sloping ledge. As he slid, his head and arm stiffened and wavered under strain. His free hand moved as if to grab the window sill, but stopped short, refraining. Pierre was shitting himself. He again covered his eyes and thought he'd never open them again. Next thing he knew, 
There was a commotion around him, and he looked up to see Dolokhov standing on the windowsill, his face pale but triumphant. Fucking empty. He tossed the bottle to the Englishman, who nabbed it easily. Dolokhov hopped down. He reeked of rum. Nicely done. Yeah, boy, there's a bet for you. Well, I'll be knackered, came from all around. The Englishman whipped out his wallet and started counting the cashola. Dolokhov stood frowning and said nothing. Pierre rushed to the windowsill. All right, lad, who wants to bet with me? I'll do that shit easy, he suddenly cried. Huh? No one wants a bet. I'm still doing it anyway. Get him to bring me a bottle, will ya? I'm doing it. Grab us a bottle. Let him do it. He'll be fine, said Dolokhov, smiling. Nah, oi, fuck no. Not Pierre. Oi, he's dopey as shit. Get him away from the window, exclaimed several voices. I'll neck it. Give us the rum, you bastards, shouted Pierre, banging the table. He was off his rocker and preparing to climb out the window. Several hands launched forth and seized him by his arms, but he was such a tank that everyone who grabbed him was sent flying. Nah, good luck, cunts. You'll never get him down that way, eh, said Anatoly. Wait a sec, I'll talk to him. Or I'll take your bet tomorrow, but we're going to Georgette's now. All right, fuck you, all right, but oi, let's go now and let's take Bruin with us. And he grabbed the bear embraced it, lifted it from the ground and began dancing around the room with it. The mad bugger. Alright, there we go. There's four chapters for you today. What a marathon. I really didn't do uh, this very well. I should have done double chapters on the previous days to keep us up to speed, but we fell behind. That's my bad. My apologies. But from now, I think we should be in line with everyone. Alright, these crazy kids have gone out drinking with a bear apparently and um now they're going to georgettes have your say about this chapter these chapters over on the subreddit thanks for listening guys i'll see you tomorrow